Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Evan. Greetings. Today, we will be going off our own beaten path and reviewing a few movies. Why, you might ask? Because they're set in the medieval period, of course. While there are many to choose from, we've carefully selected three popular and highly rated films. I don't know if they're highly rated. And rated. (laughs) (laughs) We've carefully selected three popular films set in the Middle Ages. We will review El Cid from 1961, The Kingdom of Heaven from 2005, and Henry V from 1989. Please note there will be plenty of spoilers during this episode, so you have been warned. First, we'll give you a short introduction along with some of the online stats from IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, in case you're interested in that. Then we'll review the plot and discuss the merits of the movie as a production, giving our thoughts on the acting, the cinematography, and set pieces, among other things, and discuss our likes and dislikes for each film. Then we'll break down the historical accuracy of the picture. How closely do the characters and events match up with their real-life counterparts? After that, we'll sprinkle in some trivia and wrap up with our ratings. Then, it's on to the next one. First, El Cid. El Cid is a 1961 medieval action drama and war epic directed by Anthony Mann. It stars Charlton Heston as the titular character and Sophia Loren as his love interest, Jemina. The movie is based on the life and legend of the 11th century Spanish warrior Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, known to the Moors as Asidi or El Cid in Spanish, meaning the Lord. This three-hour epic follows Rodrigo throughout his adult life as a brave and valiant leader in the ongoing battle against Islamic forces in Spain. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 92% expert score and a 78% audience score. And on IMDb, it's got 7.2 out of 10. The film opens by introducing the story's main villain, an evil Moorish conqueror named Ben Yusuf, who urges his military officers, known as emirs, to ramp up their attacks against Christians in Europe, while Yusuf himself raises an army in North Africa. Once they arrive in Spain, the emirs are apprehended by a noble knight named Rodrigo, who shows them mercy after defeating them in battle. The emirs swear allegiance to him and give him his new title, El Cid. This act of mercy is viewed by many local Christian lords as an act of treason and pits Rodrigo against Count Ordonez and Count Gormaz. Gormaz is the King of Castile's champion, or right-hand man, and his daughter Jemina is madly in love with Rodrigo. After Gormaz insults the honor of Rodrigo's father, Rodrigo duels Gormaz. This ends in the death of Gormaz, leading Jemina to ostensibly renounce her love for Rodrigo and swear vengeance. Rodrigo goes on to become King Ferdinand's new champion, defeating a champion from Aragon in the process, and asks the king for Jemina's hand in marriage once he returns from his military tour. In the meantime, Jemina agrees to marry Count Ordonez if he kills Rodrigo. He lays a trap for Rodrigo, but Rodrigo and his band are saved by one of the Moors he spared earlier. Prince Sancho wants Count Ordonez dead, but El Cid once again shows mercy and lets him escape. On Rodrigo's return, Shemina unhappily consents to marry him. However, her evil plan is to refuse him satisfaction in his marital right, if you know what I mean. He decides to just leave instead of forcing himself upon her, and she is quite distraught. She enters a convent to sort herself out. I'm sure Jordan B. Peterson would approve. Soon after, King Ferdinand dies and leaves the kingdom to his three children, whom Rodrigo has sworn to protect equally. Sancho, the eldest, illegally arrests his brother Alfonso, but Rodrigo saves him from the dungeon en route. 
After Alfonso barricades himself in his sister Uraka's city, a Moorish hitman assassinates Sancho. The movie heavily implies that Alfonso and Uraka were behind the murder. Alfonso takes the throne, but not before Rodrigo interrupts the coronation and pressures him to swear on the Bible that he had nothing to do with Sancho's murder. Though he proclaims his sincere innocence, Alfonso is deeply offended by the accusation and exiles Rodrigo shortly thereafter. Jimena joins him in exile, forgives him, and they start a family together. Years later, Ben Yusuf lands in the coastal town of Valencia, ahead of his naval forces, prompting King Alfonso to request help from Rodrigo to repel the impending invasion. Rodrigo tries, in vain, to negotiate an alliance between King Alfonso and his loyal emirs, but finally decides to run into battle without the king's help, leaving the king's army to be defeated by Yusuf's forces in the field. In retaliation, King Alfonso kidnaps Rodrigo's family, but they are rescued by Count Ordonez, who brings himself to Rodrigo, apologizes for accusing him of treason all those years ago, and offers military assistance as the joint Christian-Muslim army besieges Valencia. Hoping to win the hearts, or rather, the stomachs, of the hungry citizens, Rodrigo's forces catapult bundles of bread over the walls to feed the Valencian people. They show their gratitude by killing their oppressive Muslim overlord and throwing open the gates of the city. They offer control of Valencia to the compassionate El Cid, but he sends the crown to Alfonso instead, with no conditions, as a symbol of peace. Uraka cannot believe that he doesn't have an angle and expels the messenger from the court, but Alfonso is distraught. At this point, Ben Yusuf's forces arrive. Count Ordonez is tortured and tells Yusuf that El Cid will live forever. The battle for Valencia commences. During the fight, Rodrigo is badly wounded, but rather than let the medic remove the arrow and keep him from his troops while he recovers, El Cid re rejoins his men and dies in battle. However, his soldiers honor his dying wish by strapping his dead body to his horse and sending him riding out to meet the enemy. The sight of zombie El Cid is so terrifying that the Moors retreat, and Ben Yusuf himself is trampled by Rodrigo's horse. The end. As you can probably tell from this plot summary, the movie is definitely on the long side, and as with many productions from this era, it tends to be a little slow in parts. This is due to the fact that a lot of earlier filmmakers still held on to that simpler stage production technique, with wider shots, fewer cuts, long scenes, and long movies. The dual scenes were uh, a little cheesy and poorly choreographed, I thought, so that was one thing that I disliked. Uh, another thing is that the acting was typical for the era. It was a little melodramatic, so if you go into it expecting uh, more modern, real gritty performances, it's not quite that. It's a little melodramatic. Most of the actors playing Moors probably weren't Middle Eastern, and Rodrigo's final ride truly was the ultimate shark jump. It was just ridiculous. Everything up till that point was good, and it made sense. That just really took me out of the moment. But here's what I liked about the film. Despite all that, El Cid told a compelling story. The set pieces were awesome. Charlton Heston was an absolute chad. And just when I thought he couldn't be more badass, he grew an awesome beard while he was in exile. Rodrigo's character is virtuous and wholesome, while also tough and dangerous to the enemy. A great male role model and a true hero. They were pretty even-handed with how they treated Muslims and Christians. You might even say there were good people on both sides. Though I think they could have made the Moors a little more brutal. Just a little. But overall, I really liked it. What about you, Evan? I really liked it myself. Charlton Heston did a great job, and frankly, I was swooning a little bit. 
And I realized after the fact that he kind of looks like a skinnier, less built Arnold Schwarzenegger. A little bit very chiseled. Yeah, something about that face. Anyways, Sophia Lauren likewise did a formidable job, though I couldn't quite get over her strangely large lips. They were very large. Distractingly so. El Cid's character is really the male ideal, giving men and boys alike someone to look up to. It presents a classical view of chivalry that most moderns could benefit from imitating. Unlike many of my contemporaries, I like movies with clear good and evil and heroes and villains. I'm a little old-fashioned. I don't find melodramatic speeches corny. I always appreciate when studios try to tackle ancient and medieval history. It's a risky endeavor, especially when it veers toward non-wasp cultures. Not a Protestant in sight. Because <laughs> they didn't exist yet. Yeah, that's true. It's a few hundred years before that would even happen. That's, that's crazy to think about. That being said, I did dislike a few things. As Dan said, the ending was a bit ridiculous. But still kind of cool nonetheless, if you suspend the realism in your mind. But that's a lot of realism to suspend, that that a whole army would be so terrified that this guy really did live forever and he was immortal, that they would just all run away. I don't think ancient Muslims were scared that easily. I don't think modern Muslims are scared that easily. Yeah, because they, I mean, it's against their belief system to think that a person could resurrect. Yeah. Like before the end times. So they would obviously smell something fishy and say, ah, something's up with this. And the fact that he's just perfectly still. Perfectly straight, almost as if he's got like a wooden board strapped to his back. Yeah, how would they have done that? Just do some iron bar behind him just to strap him to it? I guess. I don't know. They didn't really show the technical side of that. They just kind of put him back on the horse and sent him out there. They have to strap his head, otherwise it would hang down. Well, I guess if they had a long enough board, it could go all the way up his back and his head, and they could just tie it and then wrap his cloak or something around it so that no one would see <laughs> like a scarecrow out there. <laughs> the Almoravids were a little bit caricatured in their villainy. By the way, that was the actual name of Ben Yusuf's forces, is the Almoravid Empire, based oh. in northern Africa. They are real. Some of the sword fighting was a little cheesy. I agree with Dan, especially between Gormaz and El Cid in the beginning. That was just, it was like five minutes, and it was not that compelling. Yeah, and they didn't even try to disguise the fact that it was really kind of poorly choreographed or cheesy looking. You can hide some of that when you have very close, tight shots, very intense, maybe some close-up face shots or shots of the swords themselves hitting each other. Eh, it wasn't that compelling. And it was lame how they didn't even show him dying. It was just under the staircase. That was such a ripoff. Like, I'm going to sit through this, and but at least I'm going to see a death at the end, right? Yeah. Wrong. Now, I, I compare that to um, when Rodrigo is the champion against the Aragonese champion. That was a very good scene. Yeah, where they jousted and then they fought. Yeah. That was cool. That was really cool. I, that wasn't cheesy at all. I don't know why they couldn't do better on that sword fight. Because there's just night and day difference between those two. They could have done better. Anyways, like I will discuss in a minute, there were a number of historical inaccuracies. Most of these were done to make the story better, and I think they did. But still, I will dissent, because that's who I am, and that's what I stand for. So, was it historically accurate? Every major character was based on real people, and the major political events were true for the most part. They got all the cities right, too, which is particularly impressive, considering most Americans wouldn't have heard of most of them. If this movie had been made today, they would have had it all take place in Madrid or Barcelona. Let's be honest. The personalities of the major characters were expertly portrayed. Alfonso was called the Valiant in his lifetime, as the movie attests. 
whenever they lose the battle and he's saying how brave he is and all that. Yuraka was called the Mad, and the movie did a great job of making her seem pretty petty and cruel. Sancho and Alfonso are shown as flawed and not fully competent, but not the worst either, true to reality. Yeah, and I really liked how their characters started off. They could be villainous, they could be okay, and they went through some changes. Well, one of them died, that was a big change. But um, <laughs> but the other one, he, he seemed like a bad guy, and of course he kidnaps Rodrigo's family, but then he kind of has a change of heart, correct? And That's they right. make amends. So it was nice to see a little shades of gray there, but he eventually comes around. That was nice. It's so rare to see character development. What's what's it called? The Like a character arc. Arc, thank you. We don't have to go off on a tangent, but like Marvel movies, if you got a woman in there, she's going to start out perfect and she's going to end perfect in every way. I like it when movies have a character arc. It makes it more compelling instead of like, oh, she's going to like knock out 100 people easily. Yeah, even though she's 100 pounds soaking wet. El Cid really did lead an army of Christians and Moors to besiege and take Valencia. That's fact. And uh, the Almoravid dynasty, those northern African Muslims who were the bad guys in the movie, and they really did invade Spain and besiege Valencia. Though I will add, they, they didn't come via sea. They had conquered most of southern Spain. Well, they had consolidated all the Muslim regions. They, they had a bordering territory with Valencia. Oh, okay, so no need to, to go across the ocean. I wonder why they chose that for the movie then. They made it seem like they just got mad and sailed in just to take Valencia. I don't know why you'd sail to a completely new continent just to take one city, but anyways. Jamina and her daughters were actually in prison to spite El Cid. That's true. And actually, they got Borgos, right? That That's where they were imprisoned in that monastery. They even got that right. Yeah, they got a lot of the little details right. And Burgos is where El Cid was born and raised to. Wow, kudos to them for getting that. Mm-hmm. They could have easily glossed over it, but they yep. didn't. By the way, if you go to Burgos today, that is where El Cid's body is and his wife. Really entombed there? Yeah, in the monastery. Wow. Now that is a neat little factoid there. I should have included that in the, in the trivia down uh, later on in the show. El Cid's life is shrouded in mystery. And if it weren't for some medieval Spanish scholars in the past century, we would know next to nothing about who the man really was. The legend around him grew to extreme proportions in the centuries after his death. We do know, though, the basic outline of his life for certain. There were a few inaccuracies in the movie. First, King Ferdinand I had more than three children that were depicted in the movie. In fact, there were three sons and two daughters. Ferdinand split up his realm to his three sons and gave his two daughters cities. The unmentioned son, Garcia, was given Galicia, which is the top, it would be the northwest corner of Spain, but was defeated by Sancho and Alfonso pretty early on. So it was, it was understandable to leave him out. Sancho then defeated Alfonso and gained the entire realm back, as the movie says. It is understandable they would cut out Garcia because he was the least important brother, and the story goes better with only two of them. The movie got some details of Sancho's assassination correct, but much of it was theatrical relish. Sancho was stabbed in the back by a Zamoran noble, not a Moor, after pretending to divulge to him a secret entrance. However, El Cid was not successful in killing the traitor. Also, Alfonso was in exile at the time of the siege of Zamora, so he really could not have been involved in Sancho's assassination. That didn't stop the people from suspecting fratricide, since his murder led to Alfonso's elevation but it was unfounded. The story of Rodrigo forcing Alfonso to swear his innocence is based in truth. 
Elsid's seizure of Valencia provoked an Almoravid invasion, not the other way around. Elsid did not die in the siege of Valencia, but a few years after the battle, but still in Valencia, but not in that big siege that was shown in the movie. So no zombie Elsid in real life? No. Oh. His death and final charge are complete fabrications, but they made for a unique ending. There is no record of El Cid killing Jimena's father or of Jimena trying to kill him. Also, Jimena's real father was Count of Oviedo, not the king's champion. In fact, it was Alfonso who gave his blessing to the marriage of Rodrigo and Jimena. All of this was cinematic flourish that was meant to appeal to modern audiences. In reality, Count Ordonez only became El Cid's rival after the ascension of Alfonso VI. They were never reconciled. Alfonso banished Rodrigo because Rodrigo conducted an unauthorized entry into a protected client state. He was chasing an army back through that territory, but he did burn down some like villages and towns in the protected state. So basically, like going against the truce that King Alfonso had with that territory. Well, then can you really blame him? No, Alfonso was shown as a bad guy in the movie, but in reality, he was a pretty good king. There were a lot of client states that paid him tribute so that they could have protection from his armies. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of the Muslim taifas were the, that way. I learned a lot uh, doing research for this one. Yeah, it was a, an interesting time period that I have rarely dived into. So that, wasn't, that was fun to, to research. Now for some facts and trivia about the film. Sophia Loren's hairdresser allowance was $200 a week, or in today's money... $2,000 per week. Much of the movie was shot on location in Spain. El Cid received Oscar nominations for musical score, art direction, and best song. And in some Muslim countries, the end of the movie has been edited to remove the defeat and massacre of the invading Moors. Heston and Lauren grew to hate each other on set, much of that owing to the pay difference between them. Heston was annoyed that Lauren was being paid more than him. By the way, she made over $1 million for the film making her the second actress to make seven figures at the time. The first, of course, being Elizabeth Taylor. Thousands of local extras were hired for use in the wider shots. 30,000 costumes were procured for the production. None of the actors for the 23 named roles are actually Spanish. Even Ben Yusuf was played by a Czech actor. The movie made $50 million on a $6 million budget. And President JFK screened the film three different times at the White House. So would we recommend this? And what score would we give it out of 10? I would recommend it. It does a good job of covering the time period and the legendary El Cid. 8 out of 10. I would also recommend it. It's a well-known, well-loved movie from a fantastic era of film. And it tells a unique story. I give it 8 out of 10 only because I took two whole points off because it is so darn long. If it had been edited down a little more, it would have been... I think a 9 or a 10. Next, Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven is a 2005 epic historical fiction drama directed by Ridley Scott and starring many big names such as Orlando Bloom, Eva Green, Edward Norton, and Liam Neeson, among others. On Rotten Tomatoes, it scored 39% on its expert score. However, it got 72% for its audience score, one of those classic discrepancy cases. And on IMDb, it got 7.2 out of 10. Not bad. And if I'm not mistaken, those scores are ominously similar to that of El Cid, at least for the audience score on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and for IMDb. IMDb gave it 7.2, and they gave Kingdom of Heaven 7.2. And the audience score is only a 6% difference between 
El Cid and Kingdom of Heaven. That's very interesting to me, considering these are two very different films, as you will learn here in a minute. In Kingdom of Heaven, a French blacksmith named Balian is having a hard time with his wife's suicide. A crusader named Godfrey comes to town. He informs Balian that he is his father and invites him to go to the Holy Land with him, but Balian declines. Balian discovers that a priest had his wife's corpse beheaded and stole her necklace, which causes Balian to murder him gruesomely. Forced to flee for his life, Balian joins Godfrey's group. Soldiers try to arrest Balian for his murder, but Godfrey's group defends him with heavy casualties, including a serious injury to Godfrey. Balian is knighted and ordered to serve the king of Jerusalem and protect the helpless, after which Godfrey dies. Balian is shipwrecked in the Holy Land and forced to duel a Muslim guy. That's all we know about him, really. He kills the cavalier but spares his servant, which gains him fame and respect among the Saracens. He gets to Jerusalem and makes a mini-pilgrimage to the major Christian sites, giving him some sense of forgiveness and redemption. And just so you know, Jerusalem at the time was run by the Crusader States Christian. Jerusalem is a place of intrigue, with leper king Baldwin, heir to the throne Guy de Lusignan, his wife Sibylla, Tiberius the Marshal of Jerusalem, and other figures. The Knights Templar are notorious for attacking all Muslims in their religious zeal, and Guy is on their side. They don't agree with any kind of peace between Christians and Muslims. Balian inherits an estate from Godfrey, and immediately takes to making it a lush plantation, where the multicultural workers live in prosperity and harmony. Sibylla, unhappy with her arranged marriage to the brutal Guy de Lusignan, falls in love with Balian, and they start an affair. Guy and his allies attack a Mohammedan caravan to provoke war with Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. Saladin, a conqueror himself, takes the opportunity to besiege a Christian castle. Balian and a small force try to meet them in battle, but are utterly overrun. The servant whom Balian spared turns out to be Saladin's chancellor, and he lets Balian go in an act of repayment. Baldwin negotiates with Saladin, and Saladin's forces retreat. Baldwin implores Balian to kill Guy and marry Sibylla, securing his place as the next king. Balian refuses because he now has a strong conscience. Baldwin dies, and the throne is left to Guy. Guy and his cronies murder Saladin's sister to provoke war again. He tries unsuccessfully to assassinate Balian. Saladin's massive army vanquishes Guy's forces in the desert, then marches on Jerusalem. With no king, Balian takes control and inspires everyone in the city to defend it. The Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, Heraclius, tells them all to convert to Islam to save their lives which prompts Balian to make a snide comment about what religion is truly about. There is a pretty epic siege, and after a few days, Saladin agrees to meet with Balian. Balian threatens to burn the whole city to the ground to keep religions from killing over it. Saladin agrees to let the Christians escape with their lives while he takes the city. There is an obnoxious scene where Saladin sees a crucifix on the ground and tenderly places it back on a table. That's the most unrealistic part of the whole film. <laughs> Balian and Sibylla walk into the sunset and both renounce their noble lives. They move back to Balian's village in France and live there happily ever after. But, as the epilogue notes, nearly a thousand years later, peace in the kingdom of heaven still remains elusive. The end. Now on to our reviews. Starting with what I liked, movies about the Crusades are high-risk endeavors. With the possibility of offending modern sensibilities and portraying unrelatable characters, so you have to find a middle ground. I'm happy they took that chance. 
Many of the actors did an excellent job. Edward Norton as King Baldwin and Ghassan Massoud as Saladin should be especially praised. Eva Green as Sibylla and Jeremy Irons as Tiberius also did very well. The Siege of Jerusalem was epic, and its visual effects were likewise spectacular. This was the best part of the movie, in my opinion. But now, about the dislikes, where do I begin? I have two major issues with the film, and many minor, but we'll, we won't discuss everything. First is the historical inaccuracies. While most of the characters are real people, their stories and beliefs were so different from the film that the genre of historical fiction seems a stretch. Second, the message this movie sent to its viewers was objectionable and frankly trash. I resented their portrayal of the Knights Templar as a bunch of brutes and terrorists, which essentially they were, in the film. In reality, they were honorable and self-sacrificial. The whole point of the order was to protect Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land against attacks from the Saracens. And that's where they came from. I know they got corrupted over time by money, but they, they were never going out and just killing innocent Muslims for fun. No, they were trying to, to serve the people. Yeah, and that wouldn't, and provoking war with Saladin just for fun is not, is not serving the people very well. Hey, I'm going to go serve some people out here. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provoke a giant war and get all the people in our city massacred. It'll be great. Yeah, that doesn't really make much sense. Saladin did not need such brutality to justify attacks on Christians. He was perfectly fine just doing it at much more minor provocations. In fact... It is a crime to portray the Muslims of that time as civilized, peaceful, and rational, whereas the Christians were uncivilized, violent, and irrational. A Crusades historian named Jonathan Riley Smith called the movie, quote, Osama bin Laden's version of history, unquote. And I can't help but agree. This kind of film only fuels Islamic fundamentalism because it falsely portrays the Muslims as brave defenders instead of people simply engaging in warfare like everyone else did at the time. Given that most people already have an erroneous view of the Crusades, this movie only served to make the gap between perspective and reality wider. Now watch episode 22 of the Crusades for more information. You won't regret it. Also, before I forget, almost every single clergyman shown is a villain. The priest in France beheaded and stole from a corpse. The bishop sent his soldiers to kill Balian for that. The Patriarch of Jerusalem saying they should all just convert to Islam to save their own lives. And the Knights Templar, like I said, just brutes, terrorists. I could go on. One last thing. I have to admit, I'm not a fan of Orlando Bloom in general. But in this film, he was especially uninspired and, dare I say, annoying. So here's my review. Let's start with the likes. The final action sequence, the Siege of Jerusalem, was pretty cool. Anytime armies are launching flaming projectiles from catapults, it's a good time, and I'm down for it. Orlando Bloom, Eva Green, Liam Neeson, Edward Norton, David Thewlis, Alexander Siddig, and Jeremy Irons are all such entertaining actors. It's such a joy to see them on screen. With that being said, Orlando Bloom seemed like he was uninterested in the movie, and as Evan said, uninspired. That's exactly what it was. It was like he was as bored as I was watching it. Balian's speech before the siege wasn't nearly as good as Henry V, not even close, not even in the same league or the same sport, and believe me, we'll get to that in the next review. But I did enjoy his speech for what it was, despite all of the modern sensibilities and, oh, we can all coexist and live together, blah, blah, blah. King Baldwin's mask was creepy and cool. I really like that aspect, especially when you got Edward's Nor Edward Norton's voice behind it. So good. Really like that character. 
The desert scenery was a nice change of pace from the other two movies, and I'm glad we picked one that was set in the Middle East uh, instead of Europe. It balanced things out. And when Balian burns the dead bodies inside the castle to prevent the spread of disease, and the priest tries to stop him, he says, God will understand. And if he does not, then he is not God, and we need not worry. I thought that was kind of a badass quote. Like, hey man, we're doing what we gotta do to save the people. This is war. I like that. But here are my dislikes, and there are many. So, strap in. I'm not such a stickler for historical accuracy, but even I have to admit that a lot of it was just pure fiction. But more on that later. Balian's dad, Baron Godfrey, played by Liam Neeson, suddenly shows up and expects his son, who's like 30 at this time, he's never met him before, just to come with them across the world on this adventure to fight for a tiny scrap of land. That's what he expects him to do. Seriously? And then his character dies not long after that, so Liam Neeson was just wasted in this film. When Balian inherits his dad's land, he somehow is the only person that knows that you can dig a well, even though he's just a blacksmith. Like, nobody there on the land knew that if you just dug down about 20 feet, you could get fresh water. How did he know that? How did they not know that? Why was there no water on this land before? And how did Balian uh, return to his French village when he was still wanted for murdering the priest? It's not like that just went away. You know, he it's, went back with all GTA. the <laughs> Oh, that's what happened. Balian hid in a bush for a minute and the <laughs> stars went away. That's what it was. Goodness gracious. The writers just didn't think of that, I guess. There was a lot of bad CGI, especially in the wider shots of the armies and even in the scene where Balian fights the servant of the Muslim cavalier. Terrible green screen effects in that scene. And a lot of shots would zoom in on one character after the last line of dialogue, which is a common technique seen in older melodramas and karate movies, but it was just very weird and it threw me off. Around the hour and 50 mark, during the Battle for Jerusalem, you can clearly hear a Wilhelm scream, ah! which, which doesn't belong. I mean, they might as well have had a, my leg. <laughs> That's what they might as well have had. Uh, it might have spiced up the movie if they had a my leg. <laughs> it would have made me laugh for the first time. <laughs> it would have made me express some kind of emotion towards the movie for the first time. <laughs> now, in the DVD version of the film that I watched and that Evan watched, it included something called the Pilgrim's Guide, which displayed text commentary along the bottom of the screen as the movie played. The only problem was that half of the stuff on there was inaccurate too. For example, it mentioned Damascus steel and how its strength came from stabbing the hot blade into a human or an animal body to quench it and expose the metal to nitrogen. As far as I can tell, that is completely false. I have no idea where they got that, but from my research at least, Damascus steel gains its strength from specific carbon content, from quenching it uh, in wood or pulp biomass or boiling it in that, in between heat treatments, and a slow, gradual cooling process. So where they got that stuff, I don't know. Ridley Scott is a good director. So I don't know how that same man can make Alien, Black Hawk Down, Blade Runner, and also make this stinker. And my last complaint is this. When Sibylla went full feminist at the end and chopped off her hair, what was that even about? She cut it all off and she looked like Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. Literally, Eva Green Day. Okay, I'm done. Now, was this film historically accurate? We already covered a lot of this above, so it is well established that there is more fiction than fact in Kingdom of Heaven. However, I need to establish that almost every character battle in City is based on real history, so we must give it that. Here are a few things we failed to cover earlier. Saladin did take Jerusalem, 
but he only let the people go with an individual ransom. They only had enough money to pay for half of the people to escape, about 18,000. So the other half, about 15,000, were enslaved by the Muslims. But of course, that wouldn't have been compatible with the writer's modern worldview that were shoving down our throats. On top of that, the patriarch Heraclius of Jerusalem was valiant and faithful during the siege. In fact, Balian and Heraclitus offered themselves as hostages instead of the 15,000 who were going to be enslaved. But Saladin refused. He wasn't quite the tolerant tall glass of water that they made him out to be. Yeah, and it, it sounds like, uh, based on history, that the Christian leaders weren't those evil, terrible, selfish brutes that they're made out to be either. That's pretty noble of them to offer their own lives for their people. Yeah. And they paid for the poor people to leave first, by the way. Of the 18,000, a lot of them were just the poor of Jerusalem. How nice And the of nobles them. were the ones who stayed behind. I think Balian was one of the last to go because he had to lead them back. But a lot of the people who were left were nobles and it wasn't like the poor of the city. The more you know. But of course, that wouldn't have been compatible with their story. Israel and Lebanon don't have giant sand dunes. I hate to break it to you. So Balian's shipwreck and sword fight scene is geographically ignorant. Saladin's army wasn't 200,000 strong, but more like 50,000. The people of Jerusalem didn't care about coexistence and tolerance, and they only cared about not getting killed or enslaved. So Balian's speech before the siege would have fallen on deaf ears. But we'll give the film a little credit. Emphasis on a little. The movie takes place around 1184, a few years prior to the start of the Third Crusade, so they at least got the dates close. And the Battle of Hattin, the desert scene where the Crusaders get absolutely wrecked, does correspond to a disastrous loss which paved the way for the later siege of Jerusalem. The character of Balian was also a real guy. Now some facts and trivia about the film. Ridley Scott disowned the theatrical cut and prefers his director's cut. The Templars are shown wearing the Roman cross, when in reality they would have worn the Maltese cross in that time period. Three real siege towers were built for the film, 60 feet tall. The scene where multiple towers fall at once was partly real. It was a composite of actual footage of one tower being tipped over, taken from different vantage points, and digitally spliced into the shot. Over 10,000 costumes were made for the film. Ridley Scott was, and still is, friends with the current king of Morocco, Mohammed VI. Back in 2005, the king lent 1,500 military personnel to the production team to use as extras. They played both Muslims and Christians. How tolerant of them. A 300,000 square foot replica of Jerusalem was built in the deserts of Morocco. And the real-life siege of Jerusalem lasted 13 days. The filming of that scene took 21 days. Now, would we recommend this film, and what is our score? Personally, I would not recommend this film. It cared more about being relevant and pushing their progressive message than creating a compelling story or even getting basic facts about history right. Some of the action was good, and I appreciate the effort to cover the Crusades, which, let's be honest, it's a landmine movie topic. But overall, I'd give it a 4 out of 10. I originally gave this one a 6 out of 10 because I'm a nice guy and it's the giving season. But I'm going to downgrade it to a 5 out of 10. The thought of watching it again, even at a much later date, doesn't interest me one bit. I don't think I'll get anything new out of it. Agreed. And you can keep the copy I lent you. Thanks. Now on to our final film, Henry V. Henry V is a 1989 British historical drama film. It was directed by Kenneth Brenner, who also plays the titular Henry V. It is based on the play Henry V by William Shakespeare written in 1599. 
The movie is pretty faithful to the original text, with most of its notable quotes taken word for word from the play. Its Rotten Tomatoes score is 100% expert score and 89% audience score. And on IMDb, it has a 7.5 out of 10, which is criminal. I don't know why that is so low, but we'll get to that. And now, what was this film about? The chorus, a single narrator in this case, dressed in modern attire, sets the scene. In the year 1415, King Henry V of England gathers his advisors in the throne room as the Bishop of Ely and the Archbishop of Canterbury attempt to convince him to invade France, explaining that he is the heir to the throne and would be justified in doing so. Before he can make any concrete plans, a French messenger named Montjoy enters and presents Henry with a set of tennis balls, a taunt from the Dauphin of France. Henry takes the insult in stride and vows to conquer France. Meanwhile, Henry's old friends Corporal Nim, Ancient Pistol, and Bardolph reminisce at Mistress Quickly's Inn over the good old days with Henry, while another friend, John Falstaff, grows ill in the next room. They all knew Henry before he was cool. Henry gets his army together, but just before he ships out across the English Channel, he learns that three traitors have snuck into his inner circle. He confronts the turncoats, who attempt to assassinate him, but Henry's loyal comrades save him. The traitors are charged with treason and ordered to be executed. Falstaff dies, and the remaining three men depart the inn to join with Henry's army, taking Falstaff's young page, Robin, along with them. Later in France, King Charles VI discusses the English situation with his constable and the Dauphin. Henry's friend Exeter enters the king's chamber, decked out in shining armor, and he makes them an offer. Surrender the crown, or the English will take it by force. Charles says he'll have his answer in a day, so Exeter leaves. The English reach the city of Harfleur, and there's a ton of explosions going on, for some reason. Henry gives a rousing speech. The men rush into battle with renewed fierceness, and in exchange for surrender, Henry promises to treat the city's inhabitants well. The governor agrees, and the city falls to the English. While Charles finally orders his men to engage the English directly, Princess Catherine asks her lady-in-waiting to teach her a little English, expecting that her arranged marriage to Henry has simply been postponed rather than outright canceled due to the war. The English army suffers while en route to the city of Calais, and along the way Henry is forced to hang his old friend Bardolph for the crime of looting a church. Montjoy returns to extort a ransom payment from Henry, but the king insists his army can still fight, and will. As the two armies make camp and prepare for the following day's battle, we see two very different scenes. The French are impatient, mostly expecting an easy victory, while the English are quiet and worried. Henry confers with his advisors, then hides his face with a cloak and wanders the camp in disguise. While anonymous, he talks smack with his old friend Pistol and debates a man named Williams over the duties and responsibilities of kings and soldiers. The debate grows heated and ends in a challenge to duel assuming they each survive the next day's battle. Afterward, Henry monologues about the hardships of leading men and prays for help from God. On the morning of the battle, a few men openly wish for reinforcements. Henry dismisses such a silly notion, arguing that fewer men means greater glory for each. The speech that follows is one of the greatest pregame pep talks in history, maybe ever. Here's the bulk of the famous St. Crispin's Day speech. If we are marched to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this feast, let him depart. His passport shall be drawn and crowns for convoy put into his purse. 
We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin say, old men forget. Yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so base. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap while Denny speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. That's so good. It's such a great speech. God, it's so good. So darn good. This really gets the English blood pumping, and they fight hard against the much larger French force. The tide of the battle finally turns in favor of the English, and in a last-ditch effort, the French cut in behind enemy lines and kill the young English pages, including Falstaff's page Robin, in direct violation of the chivalric code. This tragedy fills the English forces with grief and sorrow. After the battle, the English sing non nobis as they walk the battlefield and pick up their fallen brethren. King Henry himself picks up Robin. The song goes, Non nobis domine, sed nomine tuo da gloriam, which means, not unto us, Lord, but to your name we give glory. In the final scene of the film, Henry and his nobles meet with the French nobles to hash out the details of the Treaty of Troyes. While the advisors leave the room momentarily, Henry spits some game at Princess Catherine, who eventually kisses him. When the advisors return, the treaty is signed, and Henry assures them, that a new era of peace will follow. I was so impressed by his game. He had some game. Even that, though he couldn't are, speak her language. I mean, his his lines were some of the best. I was like, oh, I was swooning a little bit too. I was like, man, he's been practicing. That, that, that shows some talent there. The chorus appears one last time to wrap up the story by chronicling the historic events that followed Henry's conquest. Namely, the breakdown of the peace and the loss of nearly all French territory by his son, Henry the Sixth, and if you read into that, it's so sad. You know, you got Henry here, brave, strong, fighter, valiant king, a pimp, and then you get his son, who is the a complete opposite, timid, uh, almost small, physically nervous, not very sure of himself, definitely not a fighter. It's so strange how, in just one generation, all of the progress made by one strong individual can be completely undone. Fascinating. So let's move on to our review. Let's start with what I liked about it. And almost everything about this movie for me falls under likes. In fact, I loved it. The acting was brilliant. It was very faithful to Shakespeare. The music was great and the dialogue was excellent. The St. Crispin's Day speech gave me chills. 
Brana somehow took this well-known speech and gave it new life. Non Nobis was the perfect song to put after the battle, and the whole walking scene while they sang it, oh, heartwarming. Now, I had few dislikes. I must admit, the beginning was a little dry for me. Before they left for France, I had a hard time keeping up with the plot and remembering who the characters were. Shakespeare could have done a better job of introducing characters. I'm not the best at comprehending movie plots, but it took me until the end to figure out what role Christian Bale's character played. He was the page. I just didn't get it. That he was the one that Henry was carrying, his body. I just didn't know what he was doing there. I thought, what's this kid doing? They they didn't explain that too well, like he was a page and what a page is. Yeah, I guess from what I understand, they just helped the the soldiers. They were a part of the wagon train behind, you know, because they're not just walking around in their armor and their swords in hand. A lot of that stuff was stored just in on carts, in wagons, pulled by animals, and the pages would help the knights get dressed, basically. So for them to kill these just helpers, you know, for the French to kill them, that's, I guess, why they were so upset, which anyone would be. Now for my review. And much like Evan, I liked so much about this movie. So we'll start with the likes. It had a contemporary intro with the chorus in typical Shakespeare fashion, so I really enjoyed that. Seeing him walk through the movie set and then open the door and suddenly you're in England, very cool. Uh, The war scenes were gritty and brutal. There were fantastic costumes. The acting was top-notch, especially Brenna. He's unbeatable. There were great set pieces. Some of the best monologues in in Shakespeare and in really any movie are in this film. And they had extremely realistic indoor lighting, a detail that many people might not have noticed. Uh, But it was dim with lots of candles, especially in the very beginning scene. Unlike El Cid and even Kingdom of Heaven, if you go back and watch El Cid, if you remember when he is accused of treason, it looks like a Hollywood set. Imagine that. There's lights all over the place. There's lights above them. Where's all this light coming from? It's a, it's a castle, indoors, no windows. How are all these uh, candles giving off this bright white light? So when you think about it, it can kind of take you out of the moment for a minute. But I love that they had that attention to detail in Henry V with just the candlelight, very dim, like it would be in real life. Now, there are just a couple of dislikes, very small. The random explosions at Harfleur, I really, honestly, I cannot fathom what that was about. They didn't have gunpowder at the time, I don't believe. And uh, they weren't using rifles or cannons or anything. It was just sword fighting and horseback. And there was just explosions everywhere inside the city. It was cool as far as the effect and the visuals. But I didn't understand that. They could have left that out. And as Evan mentioned, the beginning is a little slow and hard to follow if you're unfamiliar with the story or 400-year-old English. Now, was it historically accurate? Shakespeare is renowned for his retellings of history. Henry V, besides the Battle of Ashencourt, is pretty historically accurate. Of course, we don't actually have a transcript of the pre-battle speech Henry gave, and that's where Shakespeare comes in his full glory. Just as Julius Caesar probably didn't say, et tu brute, Henry V's speech on St. Crispin's Day probably wasn't so spectacular in real life, but he did give a rousing speech nonetheless. The Battle of Agincourt contained more historical inaccuracies than any other part of the movie. Much of this was due to the limitations of the stage. Shakespeare couldn't set up a full battle sequence on the stage. And the movie did a little better with it by having it on an actual battlefield with real cavalry. In the movie, the spikes are merely props, but in reality, they inflicted major damage on the French cavalry. There is also historical ambiguity over the massacre of the boys. If it did happen, it was probably villagers or noblemen from a nearby village in Agincourt. Shakespeare wrote that to vilify the French and reinforce the idea 
that England won because they were in the right, they were justified. This aim explains why accuracy was not Shakespeare's top priority. He was motivated by English patriotism and a desire to write a compelling story. And at the latter, I would say he succeeded mightily. Limitations of the stage aside, the film's portrayal of certain elements of the battle do match up with what we know of the real-life conflict. Environmental factors played a key role in the Battle of Agincourt, so it was cool to see the mud used on set and on the actors. In the real battle, the wet ground was quickly churned up by marching and the movement of cavalry. As a result, much of the French infantry drowned or became stuck and suffocated in their heavy armor, or were trampled by other soldiers and or horses, which slowed the French advance. Fog also limited visibility and created confusion on the battlefield. According to sources, 80% of the English forces at Agincourt were composed of archers, which were highly effective against the French cavalry, whose horses were only armored near the head and neck. So any archery featured in the film would probably be underwhelming compared to the real thing. And Henry V leading the fight himself was also accurate. It's likely that Henry even fought hand-to-hand at times. What a guy. Now some facts and trivia about this film. Sir Ian McKellen declined the role of King Charles VI. We could have had Gandalf as the French antagonist. Henry V was Kenneth Branagh's directorial debut. Similarly, Sir Laurence Olivier made his directorial debut with the 1944 version of Henry V. This and Brenna's adaptation of Hamlet are considered the best Shakespearean adaptations to date. And uh, I don't know if you've seen that one, Evan, but it takes place in Tsarist Russia. And you might think, okay, that's a little strange, but it works. It's so good. Oh, so good. After the Battle of Agincourt, the tracking shot, which follows the Englishmen as they sing, lasts for four uninterrupted minutes. During that time, Brenna carried Christian Bale's body and eventually it hurt his back. And apparently, this is one of Marlon Brando's favorite movies, or it was before he passed away. May he rest in peace. Would we recommend this? For me, yes, I loved it. I'm a nerd, I guess, and I love this kind of stuff. For people like me, I would give it a 10 out of 10. For normal people who are off-put by Shakespearean language, I would give it an 8.5 out of 10. I think there's still something they would enjoy in it. Uh, For me, same thing, man. 10 out of 10. It's considered the best Shakespeare film adaptation for good reason. We must note the cinematic differences between the movies. In Henry V, there is a play format with some light battle sequences. In El Cid, there are old-school stage production techniques, some impressive cinematography with battles, and dramatic speeches galore. In Kingdom of Heaven, the style is very modern in its battles, and it's pretty realistic. There were a ton of people employed as soldiers, especially the Muslims, and there was mostly realistic dialogue. A few times, Orlando Bloom went a little too far, though. Obviously, the pacing is different in each, but this is mostly due to the time periods they were made in. El Cid tends to drag a little, while Henry V starts slow, but really picks up. Kingdom of Heaven? Well, it's kind of just all over the place. The change in culture over time has affected the script for these medieval movies. Henry V was written around 1600, El Cid was made in the 1960s, and Kingdom of Heaven was made in the early 2000s. Henry V is not politically correct at all, it's very patriotic and overtly religious. El Cid portrays some of both religions as barbaric, but the heroes are Christians. Religious tolerance and mercy are extolled, and Christian clergy are shown in a positive light. Kingdom of Heaven shows Christians as barbaric and intolerant, while Muslims are advanced and tolerant. Religious tolerance is extolled and shown, like I said, by the Muslims. Christian clergy are shown as absolute scum in almost all cases. 
and religion is shown as a personal experience to find inner peace. The love scenes were also different in each. In El Cid and Henry V, they had some close talking, maybe some kissing, but all very PG and more emotional and romantic, or dramatic in El Cid. With Kingdom of Heaven, it didn't get too adult, but the love story was more of a lust story, you know what I'm saying? I think it's clear that the hero is a relic of the past in cinema. Per Richard Christensen in 1993, watching the movie El Cid today is something of a chore. Much of its celebration of heroic romanticism seems either sillily inflated or crudely flat in this non-heroic age. The decline of the hero has corresponded to the rise of the anti-hero and the glorification of, quote, normal people. Is this caused by cynicism, the degradation of traditional honor and chivalry, feminism, leftism, and or critical theory? What do you think? And should it come back? To answer the second question first, it should come back. But I think a lot of audiences... They, they want to see the, the shades of gray. They want to see the anti-hero stuff because I think more and more that's what they're seeing in their life, in everyday life, and that's what they're, they've, they've come to just be exposed to. So it's sort of a chicken and egg thing for me. Like, which came first? Did we start showing anti-heroes and then people, it, it got normalized and so people expected that? Or did people start asking for it, asking for the anti-hero story and demanding that? And so then Hollywood provided that. And I don't know. I mean, some people would probably trace that back to The Sopranos, and you could probably do a whole episode on that, on why people are yearning for that, or why modern audiences tend to have more of a shades of gray morality in their movies. And I just, I don't really have an answer to it, but I I have recognized that the trend is certainly there. But I think there is a market for more heroic film. What do you think? I agree, and I think I think it's all those things I listed. There are a lot of things going against the hero. I mean, you know, we're tearing down statues, of course. That's the obvious one. We're tearing down statues of our former former heroes because nobody's a hero anymore. Everyone has faults, and if you have faults, you get canceled. But also, cynicism is a little bit less obvious. But people just don't believe that people can be heroes for no for good reason. They think if you do something heroic, it's to gain something. Like I said, they're, they're so cynical. They can't imagine a world where, of a knight. Who just does heroic stuff just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, yeah that is a foreign concept to people because everyone is asking, well, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. I agree. And like the leftist movements are generally anti-authority figures. So you're going to have them like oppose any kind of firm good versus evil, knight versus dishonorable person kind of mentality. They like the shades of gray more. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. The you might call them the 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 people who are promoting the message, the woke mafia. They tend to hate people who belong to any type of hierarchy of any kind, especially if it's a good one, a religious one, unless it's you know a Muslim one, maybe. But a, a knight or a police officer or someone who belongs to a hierarchy who is considered a good person or who tries to be a priest, those are always characters that they either make evil or they just neglect to make them the focus of the story and make them good. They don't choose El Cid to be the main character. They would choose some random person. They they don't they don't want those characters to be represented in any positive light. If you belong to a hierarchy that is designed to do good for people, you're immediately out. I would venture to say that more serious movies are made about the classical era around 500 BC to 500 AD than are made about the medieval era, which 
could be considered 500 to 1500 AD. Now, is that because we find the ancient Romans more relatable than medieval Europeans? Uh, we prefer gladiator and these things like that. Uh, what do you think, Evan? I would say, yeah, the, the Romans are, and the Gre- ancient Greeks are more relatable to us than like elves did in Kingdom of Heaven. I mean, if they had tried to make Kingdom of Heaven like accurate to the time period, I think they wouldn't have had much success. Because who's going to relate to any of those characters? I don't think any of the characters would be like good guys in our opinion. Just like warlords and, hey, we're going to kill people of other religions and defend cities and force conversions and all that. It, w- it wouldn't be pretty and nobody would watch it. I have a theory. Tell me what you think about this. The ancient Romans and the Greeks, well, before Rome became Christian, I think people relate to those and they relate to the Greeks because they are non-Christian. And I think these, these people like El Cid or Orlando Bloom's character in Kingdom of Heaven, they're too Christian. They represent this, again, this, this goodness and this hierarchy that they've either just never been, never learned about or they're told is actually bad or has a problematic history. And so they prefer the hedonistic Greeks. They prefer the pagans. That's what it is. Because I think that's what it comes down to. Maybe not obvious, maybe not outspoken. But I think implicitly, I think that's what they like. Plus, the Romans and Greeks had like a more advanced civilization than much of the of medieval Europe, excluding Greeks. Don't get mad. Excluding the Byzantine Empire, or sorry, the Eastern Roman Empire. Excluding them, there was a, a decrease in civilization after Rome fell. It's like lo- lower levels of development, and also institutionalized Christianity. It makes it to where. I think someone might have a panic attack if they got transported back to that era. They would just, they wouldn't even know what to do. It'd be so foreign to them. It'd be like going to 12th century China or something. Like it would be equally foreign. Agreed. The one thing I will push back on though, is that there are a a lot of medieval movies. A lot. Are there? There are. They're just not very accurate and they're not very good. Okay. You know, it's rare that a movie set in medieval times actually becomes popular. Like, El Cid is, it was popular because there weren't as many movies coming out at that time. And the, none of them with, with the scale, very few of them, other than maybe Ben-Hur, which is another Heston movie, or Spartacus, movies from that era that were big and set in these, they were period which, which pieces. Those two you just mentioned were classical movies. Yes, so they don't take place in the medieval era. They take place in a foreign land in, a, in an ancient time. And so those movies can succeed. But it just so happens that medieval movies don't always break through that barrier. But a lot of them are made. Trust me, there are a lot. There, a lot of them are mostly stinkers. I think. Okay, so they're just not going back to what I said. They, they are not what the people want. Exactly. People want more. I, wouldn't you say they're more successful movies from the classical period than medieval? Yeah, I mean, more you, successful ones. Yeah, like I think so. Spartacus, Gladiator. Not to mention all like the Troy. Troy was yeah, big, of course. Well, I mean, Troy's technically, I guess that would be kind of classical. Yeah, maybe. We'd have to reach out to our Greek listeners and ask what they, what they think about these movies. And maybe they have some over there that we don't know about. They're very popular. So what did we learn today? Medieval history is rich and fascinating, and you should never underestimate modern Hollywood's ability to ruin it. But there is great potential for epic medieval productions in the future, should they choose. And should we become rich, as we were talking about before we, uh, we were started recording, that if we become extremely wealthy, we will start a production company and make great medieval movies, regardless of how well they do at the box office, because that's how rich we will be.
We don't know how we'll get there, but we will. Despite historical inaccuracies, there's a chance that medieval movies can inspire people to dive into the real history. They certainly did for us. Story is king. Even the best directors, producers, and actors make bad movies when the story and screenplay don't make sense. The St. Crispian's Day speech will always be the GOAT. Time for lingering questions. What other medieval events and people would we like to see on the big screen? I would like to see more crusade movies, even if it just focuses on their travels, not even getting to the Holy Land or, or fighting there, fighting the Muslims, but just the journey itself. That's a, what, 2,000 mile journey in some cases for some people from France all the way to Jerusalem. I think of all the different adventures these people could have had during these many, many, many pilgrimages and crusades. There's so much potential there for great storytelling. And what is Hollywood doing? Giving us a thousand Marvel movies that are all the same. So that's what I would like to see is more crusade movies, but focused on little things, more like slice of life. What was a slice of life like for a medieval peasant? What was it like for a knight? What was it like for a noble? You know, we already know about what it was like for kings and stuff. We see that all the time. I want to focus in a little more. Yeah, I agree. A good Crusades movie would be what we need right now. At least what, what we need on the Sons of Antiquity podcast. So they could do the first or second. If they did the first Crusade, they could include, oh, this would be very hard to pull off, but they could include Constantinople somehow. But like, I don't know how, you, how they would manage to portray Constantinople, right? Since they tore down like all the Christian stuff in there. Oh, as far as like just filming it? Yeah, as filming. I don't know how Hollywood they Hollywood magic. They'll just f shoot it as it is and then they'll just digitally edit. That's the least of their worries right there. The hardest part will be not offending people and getting the production shut down before it even really gets off the ground. Uh, yeah, they can do a lot with movie magic and sets and, and miniatures. Yeah, they could do the lead up to... The first crusade, like what, what caused the Pope to announce it and the recruitment, they could even follow a few of the knights that just leave everything to go on their crusade and they could have them go through Constantinople, talk to the emperor, and then they could talk about how they, they took the lands and then just claimed it for themselves. And there's so much material there. And really, I, I don't think it'd be successful, but I wish they'd make Byzantine movies. There's like a few. You could just have Justinian. You could have Justinian the first. Justinian the first. So we need a biopic of Justinian Call up Rami Malek. We'll get him to star to play that. And I think that'd be interesting. Justinian is a well-known guy. And for the record, there's a lot on YouTube. I mean, like Kings and Generals. That's what I, I put in, in the, um, the resources below this episode. But they, did, they do really good stuff, including on Justinian and all his battles and all that. So there's stuff out there. It's just not on the big screen. And it's not done by actual actors. It's animation and more informational than purely fun. So there's a lot of potential there. Anyways. Why can't Hollywood get simple details right? Because reality is boring and doesn't align with what they want to portray on the screen. With the message. The message. Agreed. That's probably it. They're just lazy. They're getting paid a bunch of money. And they would prefer to just put their own philosophy into it. So they do. This gets kind of the next question. But Gladiator, also a big violator of historical accuracy. So much so that the historians that were employed refused to be included in the credits. <laughs> well, they were looking out for their reputations. I fully understand that. Finally, will we ever do another movie review? And if so, what era or genre should we tackle next? Well, in preparation for this episode, before we knew it was going to be 
about medieval movies, we had toyed with the idea of Shakespeare adaptations, which I'm glad we got to touch on one of them, at least in this. But I also toyed with the idea of biblical movies, which I think could be very, very interesting. I think if I have to vote for one, that's what I'm voting for next. Well, there's a third option of like ancient world movies. Like yeah, you got the classical world. So you got Troy, Gladiator, Spartacus, that kind of stuff. There's candidates there. So we could, we could review any one of those eras. We could go ancient. We could go biblical. We could go Byzantine. Unlikely. <laughs> no, there's, there's no Byzantine movies. But uh, I'm definitely pulling for biblical movies. That's my vote. Well, there's lots of good options there. The Moses movie, or sorry, Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is awesome. Aston. I haven't seen it. There's so many like Jesus movies out there. Passion is great. Oh, Passion of the Christ, of course. And there was one other one I thought of the other day. There's the Bible series that was like the 10-part series they did. Oh, The Bible? Ago. Yeah. Wasn't that, it was like National Geographic or something, wasn't it? Uh, Someone I, did it? I don't know. It was some big production company. It was, I remember that making the making waves. In the Obama Satan. Obama Satan? The guy who plays Satan tempting Jesus in the desert is like old, <laughs> is like wrinkled Obama. I do remember. That's probably the controversy I'm thinking of. Yes, I do remember that. Wrinkled Obama. Obama Satan. Oof. Wow, you kind of unlocked a hidden memory there. I'm going to have to go do a deep dive into the Bible show that they made with that. See where it takes me. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more medieval wisdom. 